welcome everybody again to yet another episode of the Blue Banter Podcast. Podcast where we are striving to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and also to serve young and aspiring pastors by gleaning wisdom from men with ministry experience. I am one of your co-hosts, Joe Smith, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. My name is Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in Marion, Indiana, the promised land of the North. And our guest today is Phil Pockris, pastor of Bell Center RP Church in Bell Center, Ohio. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for asking me on. Uh, we're yeah. uh, we're excited to have you. Um, and kind of like uh, we did last week where I was sick, had a sore throat and stuff, uh, Joe kind of took the helm um, and I'm still feeling under the weather. And honestly, it's hard to talk right now. And if I don't mute myself, you guys are going to hear me cough up a lung, and that's never fun to listen to, especially if you're using earbuds. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, mute myself, hand this over to Joe, and then you might hear me pop in and out every now and then. So Joseph, over to you, sir. Sure. Uh, so Phil, one of one of the favorite questions that we typically get, um, and again, I think we forget this often, um, and may, maybe it's something that should become a flagship question, but... A lot of our listeners like to hear uh, personal testimonies from our pastors and a little bit about the church they serve. And so we're just wondering um, if if you can share with our listeners uh, your personal testimony, how the Lord brought you um, to himself into the RPCNA, and then just a little bit of history of the Bell Center congregation. Well, I'm going to go farther back. And sure. I'm going to go to my great-grandparents in Zlatopol, now Ukraine. Um, I am descended on my father's side from a long line of Jews. Mm-hmm. I am Philip, son of Lawrence, son of Harry or Harris, son of Afriam, son of Reb Pinchas, the Levite. So we're a Levitical family and related to a very prominent rabbinic family in what was at one time the Russian Empire, the the Horvitz family. Hmm. Um, My father and mother made profession of faith about a year before I was born. I'm their firstborn. Um, They came to Christ, my dad, from um, pretty much unobservant Judaism. My mother's family religion was nominally Methodism, but it was Hmm. actually masonry. Mm-hmm. So they came to Christ, were baptized in the Northern Presbyterian Church, and uh, I came along about a year later. So I was baptized, oh, let's see, about two months after I was born in 1954, coming up in June, God willing, I will be 70. So mm-hmm. I'm no longer one of the young ministers. Um, <laughs> let's see, I uh, I grew up in the Northern Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, then UPUSA. And um, uh, I made profession of faith when I was 12. When I was about 13, I started coming under increasing conviction of sin. Mm. And I was casting about all over the place, uh, trying to figure out how I could be right with God. I told people that a vivid memory I have, my dad would always make sure that we four kids, I have a sister and two brothers, uh, would say the Lord's Prayer before going to bed. Well, I was first since I was oldest. Then he went to my two brothers because their room was next to mine, and then to my sister's room. 
and we'd say our prayers. Well, after dad left to go to the boys, why uh, I would start praying. And I think you men know, and maybe the listeners here know the difference between saying your prayers and praying. Mm. And I remember fervently praying that God would forgive my sins. Well, I started casting about, so to speak, for all kinds of, uh, we might say, alternative spirituality. I was messing with, uh, let's call it occult light and, well, not experimenting with, but exploring different religions. And at one point, my dad's engineering firm, he was a structural engineer. He worked for a firm in Cincinnati, which is where I grew up. Uh, that was an, a consulting engineering and architecture firm. The principal of the firm was a Christian man. Many of the engineers and architects were Christian people, and they had a contest every year for the employees' kids. You were given an assigned portion of scripture to read. You had to then sustain an examination before three Christian employees and um, pass a Moody Bible Institute correspondence course that the company paid for and if you sustained all of these you would be sent on the company plane for two weeks at the expense of the company at a place called word of life island in scroon lake new york well i got through all this i was assigned to read the book of genesis and the gospel of john and the moody bible institute course i was given was basically going through the gospel as well i was uh, a right-wing political kid back then and this in high school days i'm i'm 14 15 at this point and i was reading a book by a man named john stormer called non none dare call it treason and there was a gospel presentation in that so the holy spirit was prepping me i can see now um as well um i ended up Oh, some weeks before getting a pretty nasty case of appendicitis. I had a slight perforation, so I'd stay in the hospital for a week. And my pastor came to visit me, and I've got all kinds of time just hanging around there in the hospital to stop and think. He gave me a little booklet that had all of the Sermon on the Mount in it. And gents, often people, maybe when you're witnessing to them, will say, well, I must be okay with God because I try my best to obey the the uh, Sermon on the Mount. I think people that say that have no idea what they're saying because it mm. drove me to further conviction of sin. It was heart probing. Mm. Well, and and I remember a sermon from my pastor who was faithfully preaching the gospel. But gents, it was yet because my heart was not changed like a steel ball bearing being dropped on a six inch thick concrete slab. It mm. bounces so high it does not penetrate. Mm. Well, when I got to Word of Life the first day, you know, it, it sounded like this would be a fun place to go and maybe I could learn more about God. I remember saying that. Hmm. Well, the first night, uh, the gentleman who was the head of that ministry, a fellow by the name of Jack Wurtson, uh, preached the gospel. And it was like my eyes were opened. Hmm. Suddenly everything, I, I understood. I understood. And I... Uh, this isn't common reform practice, but I went down the aisle and signed my name and all that. But it's not that I was relying upon that. It was relying upon the Jesus whom I was now looking to, you know, uh, 
we're told by John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And that's what I was doing. Hmm. Uh, I wasn't looking at my sins anymore. I wasn't looking at my so-called goodness anymore. I wasn't looking at Ouija board. I wasn't looking at any of this stuff. I was looking to Jesus. So um, that's how I came to Christ. Now, it was uh, for a while there. I was, let's see, in between my freshman and sophomore years of high school. Um, it was about that time that I began thinking, well, what does God want me to do with my life? I'm going to be out of high school soon. And it's expected I go to college. So what do I do? Well, I thought maybe the Lord was calling me into law. So by the time I'm done with my senior year in high school, I had decided to go to Washington and Lee University in Virginia. Uh, they have, they had and have a top class law school, and I figured they'd have good pre-law. Well, I went, and while I was there in freshman year, uh, an impression, I guess that's the best way to put it, came to me that perhaps I should go explore going into the ministry. So I talked to the college chaplain. I talked to my campus pastor. I was I was an associate member of a PCUS or Presbyterian Church US, Southern Presbyterian uh, congregation there. Talked with him and members of the session there. Went home and talked with my own pastors in session, and they suggested that session of my home church in Cincinnati take me under care, which they did, and went to Presbyterian Cincinnati of the then UPCUSA, was taken under care, and um, I proceeded onward in my training, and I transferred out of Washington and Lee to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, where I graduated. And I was involved there with InterVarsity and um, some other Christian stuff. Well, um, to cut to the chase, I had a severe case of loss of assurance in my senior year in college. And I had been planning on going to Princeton uh, Seminary. Matter of fact, I had my room assignment in uh, Alexander Hall all ready to go and all. And that was where... Uh, Dr. Machen had lived years ago with the boys. Hmm. And uh, no, I didn't go. Um, now, uh, a, a person who is a huge help to me in regaining assurance and helped me to remember not to look to my sin, but to look to Jesus was a uh, particular Baptist, what we sometimes call Reformed Baptist minister, a pioneer in so-called New Covenant theology, a man by the name of Tom Wells. He was very much used by God to help me out. And he suggested I was to go to, I should go to Westminster in Philadelphia. Hmm. And by the way, he tried to convince me of Baptist distinctives by having me read some top Presbyterians thinking I was uh, an intelligent young man and I had to see right through him. Well, I guess I must be dumber than I looked. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm still Presbyterian. He used that with a couple other guys, and it backfired each time. He quit doing yeah. that. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Right. So I went to Westminster, and I was still UPC USA, which is now, again, PCUSA. And um, it was there I decided to join the OPC. Hmm. And uh, that was very difficult for me to do uh, emotionally because the UPUSA was what I'd grown up in. That's where my parents had been converted to. It was the church of Warfield, of Machen, of Hodge, you know, and, and it was wrenching to leave. Hmm. Well, I finally 
finally got it in my head. No, the OPC is the church of Machen, of mm. Warfield, of Hodge. So I finally did that. I joined at the congregation across the street from Westminster. And I'm talking in Philadelphia. There was no mm-hmm. California Westminster back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I joined there and I began licensure examinations under the Presbyterian of Philadelphia and the OPC. Well, in my first year in seminary, there were several RP students at Westminster, one of them being David Kuhn, who is at White Lake and has been there since about 1980. Um, I think he and Dr. Takiura are the only ministers who have a longer continuous pastorate currently in the RP church than I do. Hmm. Um, so uh, David Kuhn and Frank Smith, who was PCA then, he's now in our in, in Great Lakes Gulf Presbyterian, and Norris Wilson, who is now retired from being the Old Testament professor at Re- Reformed Theological College in Belfast, uh, were there. And we would all, and several of us, would have a psalm sing. And so I was singing psalms. I was kind of used to that. I'd grown up with an old UP minister who had, well, we had the the hymn book from 1957 that had uh, a whole bunch of metrical psalms in them, uh, in it, um, from the old UP psalm book of 1912. And in some ways, it was a similar format to the Trinity hymnal. So I was used to singing psalms, but not only with voice and not only the psalms, but hymns mixed in. But the idea of singing psalms was not a weird idea to me. Well, um, it more and more on an emotional level got to me where I was seeing, yeah, this is the way we ought to worship God. We've got all kinds of weirdnesses and some kind of some kinds of hymns, and there's no doctrinal problem with the psalms because they are the inerrant word of god and as well well i came more and more to understand the uh regular principle of scripture and for those who are listening that aren't reformed presbyterian or presbyterian in any sort that is the teaching from scripture that god is to be worshiped in the way he directs we don't add to it we don't take away from it we don't modify it we do it like he said god's word regulates our worship well, I came to see that uh, maybe I, you know, I'll be looking to eventually go to the RP church. Um, I uh, was an intern for a couple of years at the OP church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. And there I read some books of the pastor that uh, pushed me further toward the RP church. And then a, a thing that really did it was humanly speaking, something utterly inconsequential. It's really weird how we look back at God working providentially. So he had me, I was one afternoon or evening at King Library at Westminster, and the library there has open stacks. I was poking around looking to see what I could see, and here's this little dark red book, and on the spine was the Associate Testimony. Well, I'd known of the Associate Presbyterians, and so I thought, well, let's see what they believe. And I read through it and I thought, wow, these people are right where I am. So I ought to see if there's anything left of them. So I found 
uh, this book called The Handbook of Denominations. It had a contact. I contacted the contact man out in Mineola, Kansas, um, fellow by the name of Paul Heinemann. And um, Joe, you may have met in Presbyterian meetings, Ed Heinemann. This is his dad. Well, um, he told me that the Associated Presbyterian Church didn't exist anymore. It had merged with the RP Church in 1969, and this is 1978. But if I were ever out in Western Pennsylvania, I could contact the Reverend Ray Blair. And, well, you know, I was going to be going out that summer to Grove City. So I contacted Mr. Blair. He had a copy of the associate testimony that I could have from my own. And he informed me that just that year at Synod, a couple of weeks ago, a new testimony had been voted in. I guess this is maybe summer of 79. I'm sorry. And I might be interested in reading a copy that was to be sent down an overture. And everything that I'd had a difficulty with in the old testimony was removed. So I thought, I can move over. So the next fall, when I got back to school for my senior year, I transferred my membership from the Calvary OPC in Glenside, Pennsylvania, to the Broomall RP Church there in Philadelphia. And at the time, the pastor was uh, Harold Harrington, who just recently has gone to be with the Lord. So that's how I came into the RP Church. Now, Mr. Blair, the man in western Pennsylvania, is pastor of the Rose Point Reformed Presbyterian Church. And he took a shine to me and wanted me to come to be an intern with him for a summer before my then required year at RP Seminary. So um, I ended up going there, and as it happened, um, well, I ought to back up. I got licensed um, pretty quickly in the RP Church after joining at Broomall. It didn't hurt that the ad interim commission that year was Broomall. And back then, Atlantic Presbytery was called New York Presbytery. I got licensed in the spring of 1980 at Coldenham Church in New York. And uh, so I ended up going out to Western Pennsylvania and Mr. Blair had developed things in his mind more. And he was wanting me to be ordained as an associate there at Rose Point to be working particularly in town at the nearly moribund Newcastle Reformed Presbyterian Church. So that's how I got my first pastorate from pulling a little book off the shelf <laughs> and how I got into the RP church. Okay. Well, not only that, I can remember leaving his house. And looking out, and, and Rose Point is just this tiny village. And I said, is there anyone in your church that lives in the village? I figured they'd had to be pretty scattered. Well, he says, point across these fields, you see that uh, mobile home way over there? Yeah, that's one of our deacons. And you see across the road there, there's a farm there? Yeah, that family belongs. Well, I was a, a desperate uh, single man at the time. And had been praying for a long time. God, please bring my wife to me. Well, that mobile home had her oldest brother in it. And actually, the farmstead was my eventual in-laws. And my wife, Judy, was there in the house right at that time. She was on summer break from Geneva College. Hmm. So I end up meeting my wife. And um, so great blessing from a little humanly speaking thing. But God was working. Hmm. Now, so my first pastorate was at uh, as, as associate at Newcastle, work, excuse me, at Rose Point, working 
in Rose Point. No. Working in Newcastle. Let me start all over again. Associate at Rose Point, working in Newcastle. Mr. Blair died suddenly from a heart attack, and I was judged too young and inexperienced to take it on, so I was let um, kind of let go from Rose Point, and I became the head pastor, the only pastor at Newcastle. Newcastle eventually died. We lost our session. One man had mm -hmm. to move away. Another man ended up having our, our senior elder having to go into a nursing home. We lost our session, and I candidated here. And I had to mention I was ordained in November 15 of 1980. Um, in the spring of 1985, I ended up getting called here. And uh, I've been here officially. I was installed, I believe, on May 31st of 1985. Uh, both my sons have been born here. And, um, you know, unusually for a lot of PKs, why they've got a hometown. Mm. So I've been here at Bell Center. Now, you wanted to know a little bit about the history here. There, We are in Logan County, Ohio, western, west central Ohio. We are about two counties away from the Indiana state line. Mm. And we're about halfway between Cincinnati and Toledo. Mm. Um, there has been a covenant of presence around here since the late 1820s. Um, unlike congregations farther south, we are not or we were not founded by emigres from South Carolina and Tennessee, but by emigres from New York and Pennsylvania. Um, they formed up a church at, near the headwaters of the great Miami river. And so it was called the Miami reformed Presbyterian church. Uh, at some point it was thought that it might be nice to have a covenant college. And so Geneva got started about one and a half, two miles away to the South from here and in a little wide spot now called Northwood. Now, there's a big suburb of Toledo called Northwood, but we're not the same. Um, actually, Northwood makes Rose Point look pretty good size. Um, there may be six houses in Northwood, and there's a stone quarry there and a historical marker where the college used to be. Um, at some point, the Miami congregation split, and not altogether amicably, uh, between those who were for having deacons and those who were against having any deacons, and they became first and second Miami. And for some time, that was what was going on. Um, there was uh, another congregation founded in our county seat, one in another village to the southeast of here. And by about 1877, people living who were members both of first Miami and of second Miami decided they wanted a church in Bell Center. So they formed up with then Lakes Presbytery permission, a new congregation here. And about two weeks later, it finally hit people, I guess, in both first and second Miami that, well, this is dumb. Let's get back together again. So they had a united Miami congregation. Well, about three years later in 1880, the college moved to Beaver Falls, where it remains to this day. And, um, uh, Things started slowly dissipating. So the congregation in the village southeast of here died out in the 1880s, late 1880s. Um, the one in our county seat right before World War II, uh, the one in Northwood where the college used to be merged with 
us right after World War II. Um, they had more people, but we were in town. We had electricity and central heating. So uh, we've been here since. Now, uh, our own congregation in 1891 had a bad split over uh, political dissent. We lost the pastor, three of the five elders, and 60% of the congregation. But God mm -hmm. preserved us. Uh, the people that left went to the United Presbyterian Church in North America. That no longer exists. Uh, it merged in the 1960s with the local Presbyterian congregation. And I think on a given Sabbath day anymore, we have a better attendance than they do. Hey, hey Phil, so, was, was that um, uh, split during the Great Disruption? Is, is that what you said? No, no, no. You're no. thinking 1833 between new lights and old lights. No, a similar situation or a, a similar dissent, dissension, but it was like 60 years later in the early 1890s. It's okay. what's called in our own denominational church history, the East End Split. Okay. So um, anyway, so here we are in God's kindness. We've grown since my being here and uh, all glory to God and unto me. Um, we would have on a good Sabbath day when I first came here in the 30s <coughs> for morning worship. And there are Three people? Yeah, three people left from those 30 or so. Everyone else has either died or moved away in the intervening almost 40 years. But we now have attendance approaching 60. So it's all almost all new people. We've had babies born. We've had people move in here from other RP churches. We have people moving in from OP and PCA uh, and others. Um we have had uh, converts out of the world. So, you know, God God is doing some good stuff here. So um, I don't know what else y'all want to know on that, but that's kind of some historical background. No, that's that was great and I think perfectly thorough. Uh, you've I, kind of already... Can I ask a question, Joe, before we move on? Is that all right? Go for it. Thank you, Mr. Smith. Um, there's a lot. Uh, questions kind of rolling around in my mind regarding kind of denominational history and, and things like that. But I'm actually kind of curious, going even back to your, your testimony, you had mentioned um, that your mom was in Methodism, but more masonry, uh, you said. And then you, you kind of went on to talk about kind of exploring different religions and then dabbling even in the occult light. Um, do you think any of that was tied to maybe masonry roots and their uh, view of universalism. Like, were you drawn into any, any masonry doctrine, even as you were looking uh, for quote unquote spiritual enlightenment? Perhaps uh, in high school, I was interested in joining Demolay, which is, you know, the uh, junior masons and all that, but mm -hmm. I never went, I never did become a part of it. Oh, praise God. Um, yeah. Now, my father went into masonry, but came to see that this is a bad thing, and he left. He, uh, but at the time of his death, he was a PCUSA elder and had been ordained a deacon as well. And then my next end brother um, was in masonry for a bit and came to see oh, this is ungodly and and left. So, but my my mother's folks were heavily involved. My mother was, but came to repent of it and. You know, so, uh, yeah, I don't know that there was any direct influence uh, in my own mind. I was just looking for some spiritual something that I knew had to be there. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I ask, um, so I've been doing some research into masonry uh, the last couple of weeks. And so when you mentioned that, I was like, oh, that, that's uh, that's interesting. I'd like to hear more about that. But okay, I'll uh, stop talking, hand it over to Joe. I'm about to cough up a lung here. So I'm going to mute myself. Sure. No, uh, yeah, there was a lot there and certainly follow-up questions that uh, that could have been asked. But I think the second question we want to ask you plays in nicely because you've already, already shown uh, your historical uh, knowledge and acumen and, and that you are a proponent of knowing history, church history, both local and broader. Um, so we're just kind of curious. I don't know that we've asked this question yet. I don't even remember if we asked David Whitlow this question. We might have. Um, but but kind of a two-parter, what role does church history have in the life of a pastor? And then why should just our listeners in general, Christians in general, uh, study church history today? All right, real quickly, uh, you know, I often get asked to uh, administer church history examinations for licensure. And for our Presbytery meeting coming up in a couple of weeks, I've just been asked to be a reviewer of a church history paper so yeah and my ba is in history i i changed colleges but kept the same major the whole way through um so there are a couple of things uh i i ask why should we study church history and that it is a good question well number one it's because it is a working out providentially of christ's mediatorial reign our Lord Jesus sits in heaven enthroned as king of the universe. And we see this taught in Psalm 2 and in Psalm 110, somewhat in Psalm 45, Psalm 72. There are all kinds of places. And he said in his great commission, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. You know, it's something that has been given to him. So all of providence is in our Lord Jesus nail scarred hands. So as we see him working through things, working out of providence, uh, we are seeing it. Well, we're, we're seeing his work. We should be knowing it and adoring it. Uh, church history can often be very encouraging because we see um, how it is that Christ is working his purposes out. Um, now, a, a, another thing I think is useful is that... Um, God has given to his church prophets and teachers, uh, pastors and teachers, uh, as we see in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. And we have teachers like you gentlemen and me who are yet living, and our people and the people of God listen to us. But we have teachers in Christ's church from years past. Hmm. And so we see, we, we gain much from their writing not only writing from them, but writing about them. Uh, as we think of history and church history, well, world history in general, uh, there's little that we can do better with than with uh, Augustine's The City of God. There's a wonderful philosophy of history in there. Um, so as we, and, and there's a practical thing too, when you're confronting cults, you come to see that, oh, well, this got dealt with by, you know, you, you have a, a watchtower person come to your door and you find out, oh, this got dealt with by Athanasius back in, you know, the 300s. Hmm. And you maybe bump into a, a Mormon and there's all kinds of polygamy and all that with them. And, huh, well, 
you know, all the, uh, well, a lot of what Augustine deals with in the city of God has to do with the folly of polygamy, mm-hmm. the pagan gods. Um, oneness theology, if you are discussing with someone how wonderful T.D. Jakes isn't, mm-hmm. um, all you got to do is study about um, modalistic monarchism, um, sometimes called Sibelianism, and the problems with it. And the you, you see that Solomon, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was correct. There is nothing new under the sun. Um, some little details may be fidgeted with, but the general scope of things is this way. So we have these teachers who, in the fire of conflict, have forged answers for us. So these are some reasons why to study church history. Mm-hmm. No, I'd be happy to follow up on that if you can. No, I, no I, think, I think that was a perfectly sufficient answer and a motivating answer for why why it's both not only good to study right because as you just said it's the yeah. the outworking of of our king's uh, providence and um but then also the the blessing of the pastors and teachers i was just using that illustration uh, with someone the other day or not really mm-hmm. illustration just a fact that you know you were you know, we sh- we should not only think of the pastors and teachers as those living, but God has given gifts in men yeah. like Augustine and John Calvin and all these guys and so on and so forth. Aaron, you got something? You're you're quiet. <laughs> Sorry, and then you got my cough there. Um, it's not, it's not maybe you were coughing up pink foam or something like that. <laughs> yeah, never good, never good. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Um, uh, Phil, you you mentioned you give. Uh, church history exams. I don't know if you remember, you gave me my uh, oral history exam, I think uh, up in Southfield a few years ago. Um, and, and you've just rattled off a lot of really good reasons for why it's important to to know church history and to study church history. Um, not everybody's going to want to be reading the city of God. Um, it's though it, you know, it's, it's a long book. Are there any kind of smaller books that you might recommend to the people in the pews who are wanting to grow in their understanding of church history? Yeah, a good starter, I'm going to have to unplug my phone until I walk over to my books, is uh, S.M. Houghton's Sketches of Church History. That's what I used to teach my sons when we were homeschooling them. Um, That was in high school, but I think it's, I'm almost certain it's still in print. It was published by Banner of Truth. That's a good intro. If you want to go into a little more depth, uh, Kenneth Scott Latourette's History of the Church is good. Um, you can read, oh, let me see here. Well, for pastors, um, William Cunningham's Historical Theology is good. Now, I, I trust most men know the difference between history and historical theology. Uh, historical theology is not church history, but the history of the development of scriptural doctrine. Right. So how did we come to the teaching on the Trinity? How did we come to the teaching on justification that is in the Westminster standards? How do we come, you know, so it, it's a, uh, it's another thing that way. Now, a, a book I read when I was a high school boy. So, you know, someone interested in there in high school. Uh, it is an older work. It's like late 19th, early 20th century, but it's a comprehensive church history. And the 
author is Williston Walker. So that's that's another good one. Now, as far as RP Church history goes, and I was just talking to my congregation about that, you can go to our denominational website to the convictions page and download the uh, history of the RP Church from, well, up to 1888. And that's a free download. It's digital. And not to brag here, but my older son, Nathaniel, wrote the uh, foreword to it and did a little editing of it. Mm. Um, as well, you can um, buy from Crown and Covenant, Dr. Bill Edgar's two volumes of history uh, that go from 1871 to about 1980. They're excellent. Uh, recently, there's been a book on our church and abolitionism by uh, Dr. Ray Wilcox and Dr. Bob Copeland, and that's excellent. And a history of our mission to American Indians in Oklahoma by Faith Martin and someone back before, oh, um, Charles McBurney. Uh, all these are excellent works that have come out very recently. Mm -hmm. Um you know, one of the blessings of, of marrying Judy, the, the only blood relations I have in this denomination are my two sons and our granddaughter. But, wow, what I married into. My wife is, and you gentlemen may know this term, she is heavily dark blue blood. <laughs> so uh, there are all kinds of people I'm related to by marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's so I good. bump into her relations in all these books. It's really funny. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, there's another one that I would recommend for RP Church History, and that is The Scottish Covenanters by J.G. Voss. This mm. was Dr. Voss's uh, THM thesis, I think, from Princeton Seminary uh, when he was home on furlough from his missionary work in Manchuria and North China. Mm -hmm. In fact, I will recommend one other work, though it's digital, and you're going to have to look it up. I don't know... Um, I don't remember where I downloaded it from, but it's called Hoi Moon, H-O-I-M-O-O-N by Alice Robb. And it's a pretty comprehensive history of our mission, the RP Church of North America's mission in China from 1895 to 1950. Hmm. So, okay, over. Well, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, our, our listeners will have plenty of material to uh, to keep them busy. Um, this, the third question, uh, I think we'll have time to, to get these in. I don't think we've ever asked, uh, anyone this. And so you'll, you'll be able to give, um, first words on this one, but just curious, uh, you, you had mentioned obviously your interest in law. And so it's, it's no yeah. surprising that we would, we would have this question for you being a parliamentarian, but um, if you could just explain a little bit, we've had guys on before who have been clerks, you know, and so, we, you know, what is a clerk? You know, what's this guy even doing? Um, just what is parliamentary procedure in general? Uh, why is it important and helpful uh, to have for a pastor a robust understanding of Robert's rules when interacting in the courts of the church? And then just kind of with that, if you could explain a little bit of the role of parliamentarians in particular during Presbyterian Synod. Okay, I can try to get all that in. If I forget something, <laughs> follow good. up. All right, well, real quickly, um, the reason for uh, rules for gatherings is to allow the efficient conducting of business and so that everyone is fairly heard. 
Now, people will say, well, we've got all this rigmarole, blah, 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 blah. Well, the thing is, without it, you can have some people who are very clever and who are very forceful, who take up all the time and make sure that their thoughts, their ideas kind of overwhelm everyone else. Um, so rules of order are there in order to safeguard the minority. Now, the most common rules of order are Robert's rules. He was a general in the U.S. Army, General Robert, and he was a pretty devout Methodist layman. And he devised these for church meetings. They're modified from parliamentary rules of the uh, U.S. House of Representatives. And he thought, oh, this would just be a little thing. But as time went on, it got bigger and bigger. Now, the current version is the 12th edition and uh, it's very useful for all kinds of things um it's not terribly hard to understand but it's a thick book because it covers most every situation anyone can think of there's a slightly uh how should we say well there is a robert's rules of order newly revised in brief so this is a very basic kind of abridgment of them uh, the rules you need in a meeting made simple and easy. Now, one of the rules is that if an organization has its own bylaws, then those supersede Roberts. So um, those basic laws of ours are found in our directory for church government in the last chapter. Uh, the rules for synod debate which are used in presbyteries as well and so a young man or an older man would do best to study those things first in the last chapter i think it is of the directory for worship no 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 the uh, directory for church government um the last chapter of the directory for church government that uh, that has our rules now there are situations that are not covered there for example uh the directory for church government mentions executive session but all it does is mention it we don't even have a definition let alone procedure well for that we go to robert um but that's why that's how uh, another question we asked is what to parliamentarians place well there's not just one of us either in great lakes gulf presbytery there are usually two or uh at synod there are three and what it's kind of devolved to informally is that we are the ultimate appeal. If someone thinks that the moderator has gotten something wrong, they appeal to the parliamentarians. And classically, this is not right. It is the moderator who does all things. Um, the parliamentarians are supposed to be kind of expert advisors. Um, and so their opinion has something of weight. But it's only an opinion. What the moderator does is make rulings. And the only way to go around if you think he's made a mistake is uh, there's provision that you can appeal to the whole synod or presbytery or whatever. And by a majority vote, you know, it can be overturned if you can convince everyone else. So, um, yeah, so mainly what we are is advisory. But, uh, you know, that, that that's pretty much it. Um, 
I have taken in recent years stand that I should not, as a parliamentarian, vote or discuss on anything. Uh, so as to preserve uh, any appearance of fairness or anything like that, I don't want to be biased. So um, I I will comment on parliamentary parliamentary procedure. There's a point of order, or if there is a parliamentary inquiry, anything like that. But I don't vote. I don't discuss when I'm a parliamentarian. Sure. No. Okay. No, what did I miss? No, you you. You hit it all. Um, why it's helpful to have an understanding of Robert's rules? You, you know, they fill in uh, what our uh, our bylaws don't don't fill in, and so they help us uh, to do all things decently and in good order uh, to reflect the order orderliness of our God, who's not a God of confusion. Explained what parliamentarians do and and why it's all helpful to also just guard the minority. So I think I think you uh you hit it all, and that allows us plenty of time to also get to our flagship question, uh, which we like to ask guys. And so we're curious, just as to guys' philosophy of preaching, and I always kind of blab a little bit about this just to try and clarify what what we mean because it's not always so clear. And so just every time I try, you know, um, <clears throat> we're not so much focused. You're, you're free to say anything about this you want to, but not so much focused on what our theology of preaching is, because for the most part, uh, as those subscribing to uh, our standards, we should all have the same theology of preaching. And so that may be a little boring just hearing guys say the same thing over and over and over. We're more wondering what is your philosophy of preaching. So how do you work out and apply that theology in in your individual style, uh, your method, uh, your emphases in preaching? So kind of what is distinctive about the way uh, Pastor Phil Pachris preaches, and kind of why do you preach the way that you do? I try to be like John the Baptist in John 1, verse 29, to tell Christ's disciples, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Um, I want to point to Christ. Uh, there's no salvation outside of him. There is no meaning to life outside of him. Hmm. Now, what I do is preach uh, expository series normally. Hmm. I, I seldom do anything topical. Occasionally, I will. Um, so, for example, I had a series a long time ago that I was helped along by Thomas Boston's exposition of the Shorter Catechism. So I went through the entire Shorter Catechism, and that's kind of topical. Um, but normally I do an expository series. Right now I am um, a little over halfway through the Gospel of Luke. Um, I've covered most all in my 40, let me think here. Coming on 43 years of ministry, I've covered most all of the New Testament. I think I have preached on everything except the rest of Luke's gospel mm. and Acts and the book of Revelation. Mm. Um, I've done individual texts in the book of Revelation. Um, as well, uh, Mr. Blair, my, my first boss when I was at Rose Point, made a point that he got taught that 
you want to read more than just a little short passage from God's word and then go on and preach with your thoughts on the word of God. So I always read the entire chapter from which I am mm. preaching. Mm. And depending on the richness of the text, I may take a portion of a verse or a full verse or several verses or an entire chunk. It just all depends. Mm -hmm. um, I preach normally about 40 minutes. Um, now, what I do in preparation, um, I spend a lot of time in prayer before, during, and after. A lot of time in prayer. In fact, on Saturday evenings, I am often feeling oppressed mm. that I am supposed to be bringing the word of the holy God to his people. How can I do this? And it's it's a lot of prayer on Saturday evenings at home. And Judy will ask, are you okay? Or is it just your normal Saturday thing? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm praying, God, open your people's hearts and open my mouth. Mm. Um you know, it, it's it's kind of like um, the prayer in Psalm one nineteen. Open thou my my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of thy law. So I pray that for myself and for the congregation. Mm. Now, um, beyond prayer, I study. I uh, use expositional uh, commentaries to get at the Greek and the Hebrew, and uh, pray over that a lot. And then I use more devotional, like Matthew Henry, um, to give me good ideas for application. But I'm constantly praying for application and all that. Uh, the whole point, though, is to point ultimately to Christ. I always have an invitation to come to Christ because I believe it is all throughout Scripture that there is what we call the free offer of the gospel. Mm -hmm. and our associate reform brothers, when they hear me talking, that I get a, an applause. That's one of their big denominational distinctives that goes back to the 1700s. So uh, the free offer of the gospel that anyone, everyone who hears the gospel may come to Christ. We don't say that they're able, but they may. Anyone, everyone may come to Christ and should come to Christ. There are those who are hyper-Calvinists who would say, well, that's duty faith. Well, it is your duty to come to Christ. It's in the imperative when Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It, it's not, it, yeah, it's in the imperative. It, it's a direct order, come to me. So uh, I try to direct people, look to Jesus, and then, you know, have you done so? Um, I try to point out Christ, uh, borrowing a phrase from Dr. David Murray up at Puritan Reform Seminary, uh, Christ on every page. And certainly when I do some meditations, I try to point out Christ because he himself has said he is there in Luke 24, verse 44, uh, that the Psalms speak of him. Um, what else do you want to know? I think that's... I mean, I think, again, you pretty much thoroughly hit it. I was going to follow up on sermon prep, but you beat me to the punch on that. So you kind of already already rolled that in there. So, no, I think uh, I think you hit it. Yeah, I remember I was struck uh, in John Brown of Haddington's Council to Gospel Ministers. You know, he addresses in there, uh, 
the gospel offer is never addressed to the elect or to right. you know anything right. like that. It's to the many. It's to sinners. Yeah. It's to the unrighteous. Um, and that was just it's just something that's always stuck in my head as yeah, as that, a reminder. That is a classic seceder associate Presbyterian marrow theology. Yeah. And I am very much a, uh, if, if we were to go back into Scotland in the early 18th century, I'd very definitely be in the, uh, the, the Marrow Men. Um, yeah. I'm a fervent admirer of the Erskines, of Thomas Boston. Years ago, I bought the 12-volume collected works of Boston. Mr. Blair mm. told me, if you have to sell your shirt, get it. So I did. <laughs> I didn't sell a shirt either, but yeah, I got yeah, it. Yeah. Nice. I got it. And uh, yeah, it's been profitable since. Wonderful. So most, wonderful. most everything by Boston is wonderful. Mm, mm, good, good. I think uh, Reformation Heritage may have his works back in print now. Um, I'm not sure, but any listeners may be interested, yeah, could could maybe go check out Reformation Heritage. They've been cranking out uh, collected works a lot lately, so that's good to see. No, I think you hit that one, and that leads us then, perfect timing, to kind of our two mystery questions. Again, just to remind our listeners, the only reason we're having two mystery questions these round of guys is because we did have a listener request, a young pastor who is who's mentally struggling with what to do with the first question, and then we threw in a little bit of a theological question to to round it up. So, uh, Phil, we have a young pastor. Uh, we'll keep his name anonymous, but but you would know the man. Uh, he's really struggling with what is he supposed to do with his dust jackets. And so he's looking to experienced ministers and wondering when they get a new book, when they get new sets, what do they do with the dust jackets? Do they toss them or do they keep them? Keep them. Oh, my. <laughs> now, now, I've got to admit, you know, this is obvious to me, but when I was in seminary, there was a guy down the hall from me who now I think is a Canadian reform minister who would like instantly take them and be rid of them. And I don't yet, 40 some years later, comprehend this. They're beautiful. They protect the binding. Um, I don't get why to get rid of them but uh, there must certainly be some reason that people think but i just don't get that one oh yeah keep them um no. yeah if we were on video i could show everyone that yeah i still have every book that nearly every book uh my now this is not theological but my token stuff most all of it is dust ja dust jacket less because my son's are now 36 and 33 uh basically through reading and reading and reading tore them apart mm -hmm. um just from use not sure. from uh not not malice not being mean to daddy or anything like that but <laughs> very good no i love the authoritative answer there um yeah <laughs> uh okay second one a little more theological fun question uh we're, we're looking to settle to the debate over the course of these four podcasts. Who wrote Hebrews? Who does who does Pastor Phil Pachris, or in le at least in which direction does he lean if he had to give an answer as to the human, the human writer? We understand that the Holy Spirit certainly is the ultimate author, but who did he use as his secretary to write Hebrews? Paul. Paul, boom. There we go. 
So what are we um, what are we at now? We're at Luke, Apollos, Paul. Is that is that yeah, the three we've had? If we include you and I, so it's two for Paul, one for Luke, and two for Apollos. So you're on okay. the Apollo side, right? I'm on the Paul side. Yeah, some are okay. Apollo, some are Paul. Yep. <laughs> well, I have been honored to be with either of you guys, but uh Joe, you uh you have a great mind. I keep threatening to buy a t shirt and and my wife Judy just abominates this idea it says great minds think like me so uh, <laughs> you have a great well, mind no a, a great article on this is in dr rl dabney's discussions but i can't remember which volume hmm. so um he has a good discussion on why it's not stupid to think that the apostle paul wrote hebrews well, sure. while you look for it, when you said you wanted to get a T-shirt after mentioning Joe, I thought you were going to mention having like a big picture of Joe's face on a T-shirt. And I think I'd wear that. If if you get one, I'd, I'd get one, too. Uh, <laughs> or the other one is on the back to have written Bomb Squad. If you see me running, you better catch up. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So cool. if you see me at international conference with either of these, you'll know I finally prevailed over my goodness. <laughs> no, cool. That's great. Aaron, yeah. you are the pilot who lands the plane. Well, I'll take a point of personal privilege since we're talking about uh, parliamentarian procedure and thank everyone for listening to the podcast. I think we are uh, just over 10,000 downloads. So we thank everyone uh, for faithfully listening to us. This has been another episode of the Blue Banter podcast, an anthology of pastoral theology. And if you'd like to sustain this podcast, you can rate and review us on iTunes or Spotify or other podcasts catcher you use, except for Google, because they've gone the way of all men. There's no longer a thing such as Google Podcasts. You can share this episode on social media if you'd like to ask us a question or, oh, man, messed it up again, Joe. If you have a question you'd like us to ask the pastors that we have on this podcast, you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to suggest that we have your pastor on the podcast, you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, and until next time, whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God. Amen. <laughs>